In this lesson, which is on Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 to 19, excluding verse 15, and the lesson, as you heard me say, is entitled The Judgment of Man, we will be looking at, first of all, the attributes of grace and mercy and unconditional love, which are displayed by the Lord God as he began now for the first time in our study of Genesis, he begins his redemptive work of seeking and saving that which is lost. And secondly, we will commence our discussion of what is commonly referred to as the curse, God's judgment for the sin of Adam and Eve and the impact of their sin on the animal kingdom, on all future human beings, including, of course, you and I, and even upon nature itself. God's curse on Satan, which is presented in one of the very most important and critical verses in all the Word of God, Genesis 3.15, that verse um, is a prophecy which is known as the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. This is the first time the gospel message is presented in the Word of God. That one verse is so critical and so important to the understanding of the rest of the Scripture that I am going to skip it in today's lesson, and we will discuss it next week. I'm not next week, but in on the 25th of April when we return after our resurrection break. It's so important that I wanted to spend um, a good deal of time, probably the whole lesson will be just on that one verse. Now our simple outline for this study consists of two main sections, the call of God and the curse of God. In the call of God we will be looking at first the beckoning, seeking Savior before we then look at the blame-shifting sinners. And in part two, the curse of God, we will talk about the curse on the serpent, on the woman, on the man, and on nature, saving God's curse on Satan for the next lesson. Now, we have ended our previous lesson, if you recall, with Adam and Eve attempting to cover themselves with fig leaves and then hiding themselves among the trees of the garden. And, of course, that was utterly foolish for them to think that they could hide either themselves or their sin from the eyes of the Almighty Creator by trying to use some of the very works of his own creation, such as leaves and trees. That's what they were using to hide from him. But this is the way of the mind of fallen man. And now we are looking at fallen man from here on. Both Adam and Eve really should have known better than to try to hide from God. But their new feeling, their new sensation of guilt and shame brought with it, as it often does, a great fear. Fear of God. Not a reverential fear, but a, a frightened type of fear. Fear of God. They knew that what they had done would greatly displease God. And so for the first time in their lives, they were afraid of him because they knew that it could mean and should mean, according to his own words, their death. Man had sinned, but now God would seek. Aren't you glad for that? That we have a seeking Savior. Man sinned, but now God would seek. What we find in Genesis 3-9 is the call of the seeking Savior. So let's look at Genesis 3-9, the beckoning, seeking Savior. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Do you notice that Adam did not run to find God, did he? After he sinned. He didn't run to, to confess to God his terrible sin. So what did the Lord God do? What did he have to do? He came down from heaven to earth in order to seek Adam. And he would do precisely the same thing, but in a human body, some 4,000 years later. And he would do it for all of Adam's descendants, including you and I. Now, we might ask the question, why did the Lord come to the Garden of Eden? As we might also ask, why did the Lord come down to earth and go to the Garden of Gethsemane? Why did the Lord come and go to the garden tomb? All for the very same reason. He came to save Adam. He came to save man. Remember in Hebrew, the word Adam means man. Adam had sinned. Man has sinned. 
and his sin had alienated him from God. And that separation, we could say, broke God's heart, so to speak. Because in Adam's sin, the Lord could look down the corridors of future history and he could see all the misery and the pain and the suffering and the sorrow and the heartache that would come to literally billions of people who would yet inhabit this world and who would also be alienated from him. You see, he could see the murders, the murders. He could see the, the wars which would take place. He could see the inhumanity of man to man and the mutilations and the diseases and the crimes and the immorality and the false religions which would arise and the cults and he could see all the rivers of tears which would flow and flow and flow over all of the centuries just as a result of the disobedience of Adam and we could say it broke God's heart but that which must have grieved God the most must have been seeing in advance, since of course we know that he knows the end from the beginning, seeing the billions of people who would find their eternal end in a place which he had prepared not for man, but for the devil and the demons, the fallen angels, a place called the lake of fire. But this wasn't his will. It never was his will. From the very beginning, it was not God's desire that any man should perish. So since man would not seek him, he chose to seek man, beginning with the first man, Adam. Since man had no way at all to reconcile himself back to God, um, God would go to man. And he would offer man the opportunity to then be reconciled back to himself. So God went seeking for Adam. And of course, in saying that he went seeking for Adam, he also went seeking for Eve because she is included in the fact that she is one flesh with her husband. And God called out to Adam saying, where art thou? Now, naturally, God did not ask this question. For his own information. Being God, he knew exactly where Adam was, didn't he? He knew where he was, no problem. As he also knew exactly what Adam had done. For the eyes of the Lord are in every place, Proverbs 15, 3 says. So the question was not asked so that God could gain some information. The question was asked so that Adam himself would think about where he was. Adam was where? He was running and hiding from God. That's where he was. He was lost. Not physically. He wasn't lost physically. He was lost spiritually. So God called Adam in order to arouse conviction in him. He wanted to get Adam to think about what he was doing in running from the only one who could save him from his hopeless situation and the only one who could correct and salvage his desperate predicament and give him guidance and give him direction and tell him how he might escape the judgment of death as well as renew in him peace and joy and security and love and hope and spiritual life put spiritual life back into his soul so when god called out where art thou it was a question which was asked for adam's own good it was a question asked in order to give adam the opportunity to face up to his own situation and to his sin and to be honest about it before god and confess it to him it was, it was not here the call of a cruel taskmaster who was eager to angrily beat to death his disobedient slave. Nor was it the call of a merciless judge who was ready to pronounce the death sentence upon a convicted criminal. Rather, this is the call which is similar to the call of a broken-hearted father who is trying to reach out in love to his wayward child. This is the call of, the, of the, the father of the prodigal son, isn't it? Where art thou? It was the voice of the same one, in fact, who would later call out to other Adams with the words, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden 
and I will give you rest. And it's the voice of the same one who would beckon men to himself with the words, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. So the searching question, where art thou, rang through the forests and the glades and the flowers of beautiful Eden as it has since run through the veils of every single land on earth, urging the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve to search their souls to realize where they are in their spiritual relationship with their maker. Like Adam, all men need to sense their conviction a conviction for their sin, don't they? We all need, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, for him to convict us of the fact that we are sinners. We all need to sense our need for the Savior. All men need to realize the hopeless and utterly helpless situation that we are in apart from him. We need to realize that our own fig leaf works of self-righteousness will only wither in the presence of a holy God. So we need to answer God's call to come to him rather than run from him. Isn't it ironic that that's what most men do? They do exactly what Adam did. They run from him, the only one who can help them, instead of going to him, coming to him. What, the, what men need to do is uh, follow the example of the Philippian jailer who cried out, and said, what must I do to be saved? So God called to Adam, and just the fact that he did call out to Adam, was this not a, an act of God's grace? I said we'd be seeing the redemptive works, of, the redemptive attributes of God, his grace, his mercy, and his unconditional love. So just in the fact that he did call out to him, rather than strike him dead, is an act of God's grace. And it's another act of his grace that Adam heard God's voice, right? Think about that. Because he had now alienated himself from God. So it was only God's grace that allowed Adam to have the ears to even hear God calling him. And you know what? It's a similar act of God's grace every single time a sinner hears the voice of the seeking shepherd calling did you hear his voice at one point in your life calling to you? I hope you did. Because his sheep hear his voice. And if you're one of his sheep, he has given you the grace to hear his voice. Well, let's move on now. That was the beckoning, seeking Savior. Let's look at, look at the blame-shifting sinners. And I'll read the verses in just a minute. Now, as I mentioned in... Um, our last lesson, there are seven consequences of sin which are presented for us in Genesis chapter 3. We've discussed three of those consequences already. We've discussed the shame that their sin brought to them in verse 7, the guilt and the fear which came their way in verse 8, the way of Adam and Eve, and then their alienation from God in verse 9. So we now come to the fourth consequence of sin, which we find in verses 10 to 13, and that is division in relationships. As both Adam and Eve stepped forward after God called out to them, they stepped forward to face God from their foolish attempt to hide behind the fig leaves and the foliage of Eden, we now find that their relationship with one another was no longer that of perfect oneness and perfect love. And neither was their relationship with God, at least on their part, also one of perfect union and love. So let's look at uh, verse 10 as we, I don't know if you remember this on the, um, the outline, we're under the blame-shifting sinners. We're going to look, first of all, at Adam's explanation for why he was hiding, then his excuse, and then Eve's excuse for their sins. So let's look, first of all, at Adam's explanation. And for this, let's read verse 10. First of all, let me review 9. It says, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Now here's Adam's answer. And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. God's grace right there that he heard it. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. 
Here in verse 10, Adam is explaining to God why it was that he was hiding. He admitted that it was because he was afraid because he had discovered he was naked. Now, without saying it directly, Adam was admitting here, wasn't he, that he had eaten from the forbidden fruit tree. But he certainly didn't come out and say it like that. But in an indirect way, he was saying that. However, as we'll see in the next two verses, when he was directly asked by God if he had eaten from the forbidden fruit tree, Adam never really came right out and plainly confessed, yes, Lord, I did eat. He never said it like that. Rather, what's he do? He manages to blame both God and his wife for his own disobedience. Now, Adam's explanation for why he had been hiding from God was threefold. He said, basically, I heard, I was afraid, and I hid. Oh, I have those in the wrong order there. You can even see them on the transparency. I heard, I was afraid, and I hid. And even this had to be pulled out of him, didn't it? I mean, he didn't come running to God with this information. God had to ask him and pull it out of him. So it hadn't been given voluntarily until God sought Adam. It's too bad, really, when you think about it, that Adam didn't run to find God just the minute that he had sinned. And his eyes were open and he, had, he knew his guilt and his shame. It's too bad that he didn't run to God. It's too bad that he didn't fall on his face in tears, confessing, I have sinned before heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Yet that is not the way of fallen man, is it? To go running and seeking after God. The scripture says there is none that seeketh after God. No, not one. And Adam would again demonstrate um, the way of fallen man and the desperately wicked nature of fallen man by way of his response to God's next two questions. Because rather than directly confessing his sin, Adam attempts to shift the blame. So let's look at that in verses 11 and 12. This is Adam's excuse. And he said, this is God now speaking, and he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. The seeking Savior went right to the heart of the matter, didn't he? This is always the way it was with the Lord Jesus when he was on earth. He did never beat around the bush. He went always right to the heart of the matter when he asked Adam here two questions, which in essence were, who told you that you were naked? And secondly, have you disobeyed me by eating of the forbidden fruit? So Adam needed to be forced to confess his sin. Yet rather than doing that, Adam, who was once a perfect, bright, honest, upright being with great intelligence and great integrity, what does he do now? Now he gave his master an insidious excuse, which really sounds like something that would come more out of the serpent than out of Adam. Adam said to God, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me. Well, let's read it in a different way. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. He was not only attempting to shift the blame of his, for his own sin onto Eve, but what was, who was he actually blaming here? He was actually blaming God for being the one to have given him Eve in the first place. Now, as we examine Adam's answer then, we know, first of all, here that he tries to blame God, the woman whom thou gavest to me. Then what does he do? He tries to blame Eve because he says, she gave me of the tree. And then finally, third, he admits that he did eat. And that was certainly a roundabout confession, wasn't it? A roundabout way of confessing. Yet, how often do you and I do the very same thing? How often do we ask God why he allows and lets such terrible things happen to us? As though God had caused 
the temptation or the tragedy or the trial or the tribulation in our life. God didn't tempt Adam to sin, nor did God provide him with a wife in order to tempt Adam to sin. God doesn't ever tempt anybody to sin. You know that, don't you? It tells us in James 1, verses 13 to 15, this. It says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So why do men sin? It goes on, it says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Adam was not tempted by God to sin. Neither was it Eve's fault that he had sinned. Adam, remember, was not deceived. It told us that in 1 Timothy 2.14. He deliberately sinned then. You know, it was his own lust. Whatever caused that lust, whether he wanted... Well, he wasn't deceived, so it couldn't be that he wanted to be like God. But maybe his lust for Eve to keep her with him. Whatever it was, he deliberately sinned. He knew exactly what he was doing. He and he alone was responsible for the choice that he made when he ate that forbidden fruit. So it was Adam's sin and the consequence of that sin which brought troubles and tragedies and trials and tribulations into his own life. And this is true with us as well. It's a result of sin, whether our sin or others' sins um, and the consequences of sin. That's the reason we have troubles in this world. It's not God's fault. And you hear a lot of people say, well, if God is a, a good God, why does he allow this? He, he, you know, it isn't his fault. Sin brought this. It's a consequence of sin. Because he's holy and just, he has to judge sin. And so we live in a cursed world. And these kind of things happen. Tragedies and trials. So anyway, God's grace and mercy are again seen in the fact that he didn't right here strike Adam dead. Because that was kind of an impertinent answer, wasn't it? Adam was actually inferring that God himself was somehow responsible for sin, for human sin. Just in the fact that Adam could have said such a thing to the one who had given him life and the one who had provided so richly and abundantly for his every need, and in the fact also that Adam could shift the blame to the woman about whom shortly before he had said what? This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He should have taken the responsibility. I mean, if she was bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, he shouldn't have blamed her. He should have said, well, I was responsible for her because she's one with me. And all of this shows us how devastatingly deep are the consequences of sin, right? Look how quickly he fell from such, such a wonderful, perfect being. And now here he is, blaming God and blaming his own wife. Well, having managed to get at least somewhat of a confession from Adam, because finally he did say, and I did eat, um, he, the Lord next turned to the woman. So let's look at verse 13 and see if her response to God fared any better than Adam's response. So this is Eve's excuse, verse 13. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Doesn't sound like she did a whole lot better here. At the one time when... Eve should not have followed the lead of her husband. This is one time she shouldn't have followed his lead. What did she do? She did. Typical of women, right? <laughs> we don't follow when we should, and we do follow when we shouldn't. So she should not have followed his lead this time, but she did. When she was asked by the Lord God, what is this that thou hast done? She did exactly as Adam had done. She blame shifted. She said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. You know, if sinners, which is all of what all of us are, we're all sinners saved by grace, if sinners can find any kind of a loophole to give an excuse for their sin, what do they do? 
<laughs> they just jump through it as quickly as they possibly can. It's the same old line here of blame shifting which the sons and daughters of Eve have been using ever since she first introduced it. You know what that is? That, that line that we love to use so much? <laughs> the devil made me do it, as Flip Wilson, I think he was the one who coined that phrase. The devil made me do it. And that's exactly what she said here, didn't she? While it was true that the serpent, that Satan did beguile Eve with his lies and his half-truths, yet he did not make her sin, did he? He tempted her, but he could not make her sin. She chose to sin all by her little bitty self. The serpent was not the end cause of Eve's sin. She was. She alone made the choice to pluck that forbidden fruit and eat it. She alone chose to believe Satan's lies over God's word, God's truth. Now, although both Adam and Eve did manage to end their answers to God's searching questions with a small confession of, and I did eat, they both ended the same way, and I did eat, they probably said it under their breath with their heads tucked down, you know, very quietly. Although they did both admit this, we don't really find any real indication of true repentance here, do we? I mean, it doesn't say they fell down on their faces and cried out and begged God for forgiveness. They just said, and I did eat. What we really find is an attempt on the part of both of them to justify their sin. Now, they were definitely sorry that they had been discovered, and they were definitely fearful of the consequences for their action, but there really is no real evidence here of brokenness or humility and full acceptance of their own guilt before a holy God. So God, again, had every right, based on what he had said over there in Genesis 2.17, when he said, For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, he had every right to have stricken them dead right then and there on the spot. Yet, he didn't. He was going to display to the universe his attributes of unconditional love and grace and mercy. But, because God is also a holy God and a just God, there was no other course of action for him to take than to initiate judgment. He would not be holy if he didn't judge sin. So he had to judge the sin. But the good news is that his judgment would not only be punitive, but it would also be redemptive. And for that, we can all be very, very thankful. Let's uh, begin now the second part of our outline. We have looked at the call of God, and now we'll look at the curse of God. From verses 14 to 19 of Genesis chapter 3, if you want to mark your Bible in any way, from 14 to 19, we have what is commonly referred to as the curse, although it actually contains more than just one curse. There's the curse on the serpent and the rest of the animal kingdom, which we find in verse 14. There's the curse on Satan in verse 15, which, as I said, we'll uh, talk about next time. And there's also the curse upon the woman, verse 16, upon Adam, verses 17 all the way to 19, and then the curse on nature, which overlaps the curse on Adam. We find the curse on nature in verses 17 and 18. We find, however, that for Adam and Eve and for the rest of the world, for the animal kingdom and for the earth itself, the subjection under the curse was given in the hope of eventual redemption. This is what we learn about when we read Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 22, I believe it is. We know that one day the curse is going to be reversed, right? So the curse here was given to man and woman and the world and the animal kingdom in the hope of eventual redemption. However, this is not the case for Satan. <clears throat> Satan's curse is final and it's irrevocable. Not only had Satan instilled rebellion against God, where? 
in heaven with one-third of the holy angels which followed him, but now he had also spread that rebellion to mankind, and he had infected the earth. So for Satan, there is no hope of redemption. His curse is settled in heaven forever. Okay, well, let's begin now then by looking at the, the curse on the serpent. This is speaking about the animal creature, you know, the, the serpent itself, not Satan. It says in verse 14, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. The first creature here to receive God's pronouncement of judgment was the animal used by Satan. Now, you know, Satan is a spirit being without a body. So he had to take a form of a body or use a body. And what did he choose to use? He used the the body of a serpent in order to approach Eve. So we are told here that the serpent was cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field, which means that all the other animals were also cursed, right? He was just cursed above them, but they were all cursed. However, somehow or another, the serpent apparently suffered the biggest alteration of his original form. The original serpent, remember we talked about this, was some kind of an upright, probably two-legged, shining creature and we know that because the meaning of the word serpent in hebrew nachash means literally upright shining creature so it must have been some kind of a uh, had some kind of a, a special beauty it wasn't a quadruped it stood up because it says upright it must have stood on two feet feet and it had some kind of a special beauty for it to have been called shining It had this shining appearance about it. And it was probably the serpent's beauty which caused Satan to choose it to either possess or to disguise himself in. Because uh, this was his own problem, wasn't it? His sin, his own sin in heaven had been precipitated by his vanity and his pride regarding his beauty. So I imagine he looked at earth and chose the most beautiful creature to, to um, approach Eve in. Now, God's judgment upon the serpent was that it was to henceforth crawl upon its belly, you know, rather than walk upright, and it would eat dust all the days of its life. Now, that doesn't really literally mean that serpents go around eating dust to stay alive. What it indicates is that its food was to be eaten directly from the dust of the ground, and that, of course, is how serpents and snakes have to eat. So the serpent became the kind of creature that we now think about when we think of serpents and snakes. Actually, the serpents and snakes of this world are to serve as perpetual reminders to mankind of the instrument of the fall. And they also serve to remind us of the coming final judgment of Satan, as we'll see when we look at verse 15. Every time we see a snake or a serpent, it should cause us to think about the fact that one day... The one that this animal represents, his head will be crushed. Well, it actually already has been crushed. He's just pending his judgment there. So they serve to remind us of the final coming judgment of, of Satan. So when we look at a snake, it should remind us of the fall of man, why we're in the predicament we're in in the first place, and then it should remind us of the eventual victory of Christ when he will completely do away with Satan. Every time we look at a snake and watch its silent... I don't know about you, but we have a lot of snakes where we live because we're way out in the woods, and so I see a lot of snakes, especially during the summer. Um, Every time you see its silent, slithering, winding approach toward its prey, we are reminded of Satan's tactics with Eve and of how he has, since that ancient time literally use thousands and thousands of other upright, shining creatures to cunningly deceive the multitudes. He has, hasn't he? Many of his dupes are disguised as angels of light, even many, you know, as pastors in pulpits. They're shining, upright creatures, but their words, you should need to listen carefully to their words and test them against what? The, the true word of God. So worldwide, 
I think this is true, worldwide, wherever men and women and children look at serpents, they sense sort of a loathing mixed with a fear, unless they are somehow or another involved in the occult or in some satanically inspired religion or cult or um, culture. Otherwise, there's just a natural sort of a loathing and fear of snakes. Well, perhaps at this point, some of you might be thinking about the justice of God's punishment on the serpent. You know, wondering to yourself how this, uh, how it could be right, how it could be just that this perfectly created sinless creature could be held to blame for Satan's use of it. Now, while it is true that the serpent creature itself was not responsible for Satan's action, you have to remember that neither were any of the other animals responsible or guilty for having done anything wrong. And yet they, too, were all subject, subjected to God's curse, weren't they? And, th and this includes, of course, the constant struggle for survival and inevitable death. All animals are under the curse. You know, if you look ahead to verse 21, the animal which was killed in order to provide uh, coats of skin for Adam and Eve likewise was not guilty of having done any wrong. I assume that that animal was probably a lamb. It wasn't guilty either. We have to remember that the Creator has absolute power and authority over his creation, just as a potter has absolute authority over his clay. All the beasts of the field and the cattle and the fowl of the air and the other creeping things, and see, now the serpent moved into that category, didn't he? It was no longer upright. He moved into the category of a creeping thing. And all the insects and, and everything else were henceforth, because of Adam's sin, under the sentence of death. They were all a part of man's dominion. And therefore, when man sinned and death entered into the world, it infected every aspect of that dominion, both living and non-living. However, the curse of God went beyond the mere serpent here now. It also went to Satan himself, who had used the serpent as his instrument of destruction. We notice that the Lord God, if you look at verse, when it goes right into verse 15, and we're going to discuss this next, next time, but it goes right in and he just goes on with his curse, pronouncing his curse, God does. This time he's speaking to, the, to Satan, the one who had used the serpent. And he just says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, he shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. You notice there that the Lord God asks absolutely no questions of Satan, does he? As he had done with both Adam and Eve. He had asked them questions. He had dialogued with them. But God refuses to dialogue with Satan, which is something that's, that Eve should have done. Likewise, she should never have dialogued with Satan. But God has no dialogue at all with Satan. He just puts the curse on him. He went right to the point. Now, in hearing, think about this. Adam and Eve are standing there when God is pronouncing the curse on Satan that we just read in verse 15. So hearing God's words to Satan must have caused Adam and Eve to suddenly lift up their heads with a sudden realization of fresh hope. Why is that? Because for the first time in verse 15, they hear the gospel. I mean, he doesn't get into detail about the death of burial and resurrection of Christ, but this is, and we'll discuss this next week, this is the first good news of the coming of the one who would be their redeemer, the one who would permanently crush the head of their wicked enemy who had so totally turned their whole world upside down. So this is to be noticed here, that before God pronounced judgment on Adam and Eve, which he'll do next, First, he allowed them to hear his gospel message. That's always the way of the Lord. Before he gives you the bad news, he gives you the good news. And that's what he does here. He gives them the good news first. He talked of the woman's seed. You notice that in verse 15? About her seed. 
He talks of her seed, and what would that cause them to realize? If the woman is going to have seed, she's going to live. They're both going to live because she needs Adam to bear a child. And so he's telling them that they're not going to perish immediately. They are not going to die right away. Of course, they began the dying process, but they weren't going to be put to death on the spot because they would live to reproduce. And also they learned that they would yet live again spiritually. They died spiritually the minute they sinned. They had a broken relationship with God, but here he's talking about a coming redeemer. So they would be brought back into a spiritual relationship with God. So in other words, they would be reconciled back to him. The Lord God, in his great love and in his great goodness, his great mercy and grace, is so very good, isn't he? I mean, here he had every right to just crush them right there and then on the spot. But he's so good, he loved them to the uttermost, even though they had disobeyed and even blamed him for their disobedience. In his mercy, he would not give to them what they did deserve, which was eternal separation from him, both physically and spiritually. And in his grace, he would give to them what they did not deserve, which was eternal life and salvation. So let's look now at his judgment on the woman, remembering all along that, first of all, he gave them the good news. Now here comes the bad news, verse 16. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Because Adam and Eve were the representative heads of the human family, of humanity, the judgments pronounced upon them are passed on to their descendants. They're passed on to their offspring. And, of course, they are still being experienced, right? Exactly. So although the judgments of verse 16 were spoken to Eve directly, yet they are likewise judgments experienced by all women. Furthermore, Eve and all future women shared in the curse on Adam. I haven't read that yet, but you know what his curse is, I'm sure. Uh, So women also share in the curse that was placed on Adam because Eve was of the man. So I think we all know this to be true. Whenever, if you ever have tried to um, grow a flower garden (laughs) or a vegetable garden, or just to maintain your yard and your grass, you know that we share in the curse on Adam. And also um, because of the weeds, you know what I'm saying. You know, we have to toil to labor to get anything to grow with the ground. Also, we will return to the dust of the ground, as God stated in his judgment on man at the end of verse 19. So we share... Not only do we have our own special curse given to us in 16, but we also share in the curse that was placed on man. Yet, men do not share in the judgment which was given to women regarding the pain of childbirth. Do they? I've never known a man yet to give birth to a woman other than Adam. And neither do they share in the judgment upon women to be submissive. To their spouse. The woman was, God said, to experience many forms of pain. So contrary here to the common understanding of Eve's curse, this verse, verse 16, does not just tell us that women will experience pain and suffering in childbirth. The understanding of the first phrase there in that verse is this. It says, literally, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow, and in particular, thy sorrow in childbirth. The word sorrow in the Hebrew is itzibon, and it means trouble or sorrow or pain. So what God is saying here to woman is that she's going to have a lot of trouble and sorrow and pain. And in particular, will she suffer pain um, and trouble in childbirth. Now, when we consider the reality of this judgment, do we find that it's true or not true? Is it real in our lives? 
I believe it's very, very true. Women in general do experience more sorrow than men. And this is because I think we feel things more deeply than men, usually. And we as women are more connected with the troubles and sorrows of other people. You know, we're more relational. We're we're more concerned with relationships with men. Therefore, we feel the sorrows and the pains and the troubles of, for example, our own children more than our husbands do. We feel the troubles and sorrows of our husbands. We feel them for other family members and for our friends and neighbors. That's just the way we're made. So we do experience more sorrow in our lives. And generally speaking, also, men die before women. Isn't that true? Generally speaking, men die earlier than women. And in this fact, too, women have sorrowed more. And if we think about how many women have suffered just over the loss of their sons or their husbands in times of war, how many millions of women have grieved after, you know, have, having lost sons or husbands to warfare, we can understand again how true this is that women have sorrowed more than men. Perhaps it is because Eve's sin was the cause for Adam to choose to sin that women have been judged to feel for others and to suffer their sorrow and pain more keenly than men do. Well, in addition then to, to sorrowing in general, you know, to experiencing sorrow in general, just in life, also there is to be the unique pain of childbirth. And it's definitely unique, isn't it? <laughs> Nothing quite like it. The travail of childbirth is so painful that it's oftentimes used in the Bible to illustrate severe suffering. The function of reproduction and motherhood had originally been given by God to be a very joyful thing, but it was marred by Eve's sinful lust to be as God himself and by her subsequent disobedience. So pregnancy and labor, you know, labor in childbirth and motherhood are not experiences which come free of any suffering and pain, which they would have been in the original sin-free world. So in the area of woman's greatest fulfillment, which is that of bringing forth and raising children, there was to be great pain. And oftentimes, trouble and sorrow because think of all the miscarriages down through the centuries women that have had miscarriages or stillbirths or infant deaths and even of the mothers who have died while giving birth to their children so that's the curse on women furthermore Eve, who had acted independently of her husband now, we see the second part of her curse, Uh, she had acted independently of Adam when she took that forbidden fruit, she's told here, secondly, by God, that she must exercise her desire to her husband. Um, And he would bear rule over her. Not only then was woman to experience sorrow regarding her children, but she was also to be subservient to her husband. Because of sin, now that sin had entered into the world, God knew that the family would no longer be able to operate in total perfection with each member living perfect lives free from all kinds of conflicts and and troubles and problems. The marital relationship and also the family would now become, would now know um, a lot of selfishness. You'll like this one. They would now know selfishness and problems and rebellion and sorrow, you know, all the consequences of sin. There would never be a perfect family. So to maintain some form of peace, the woman was to submit to the authority of the husband. Now, this lady here doesn't really want to do that, as you can see, but that's to be the way it is. And this was really fair judgment. This was fair. All of God's judgments are fair. 
because um, it was fair for the one who had acted independently of both God and her husband. You know, Eve had not even consulted Adam on an equal level, uh, as an equal. She didn't even consult him regarding the forbidden fruit. She had just simply taken matters into her own hands. She had lusted for control and for independence. She had wanted to have the knowledge of God himself. So it was fair and it was just judgment that henceforth woman was to be under the authority and the rule of her husband. So she is under the very authority, you see, which she had attempted to take for herself. Now what we must remember is that in God's mercy, a woman's submissiveness actually becomes part of her attraction to a man. And that is true. Women, uh, men, are, are men more attracted to this one or to this one? <laughs> Not just the beauty, but the submissive nature. Also, a woman is protected under the covering, which is provided by her husband's leadership. So this isn't all, you know, just a curse. It can, God can take the bad and turn it into good. It can also be a wonderful blessing. The role of a man and a wife, according to the scripture, is a beautiful relationship. You know, I'm talking about a Christian marriage where you can undo a lot of the effect of the curse. A Christian marriage is a beautiful relationship of mutual love and mutual sacrifice. And in this setting, in the Christian setting, it's not so difficult for wives to be submissive to their husbands. You know, hopefully if their husbands are Christians, I admit if they're not, then it can be rather tough on you. But then you still have to be godly and you have to do what you need to do and be submissive and be quiet and do the first Peter 3 1 thing, you know, win him with your silent witness. Now, of course, tyrannical men have taken this judgment here on women far beyond God's original intention. There have been great injustices and cruelties associated with male-dominated religions and cultures and governments. In fact, in some uh, non-Christian cultures and religions, subjugation and humiliation of women has even been very merciless. As you know, if you know anything at all about history, and even in many countries today, women are treated just like animals. In many cases, husbands have even held the power of life and death over their wives. Yet this is just simply the product of further sin. It is not what God had originally intended for women, even under the curse. This was not what God had intended. Okay, I better get moving on. So let's look at the judgment on man, verses 17 to 19. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Shall thou return. Well, Eve was to have pain and sorrow in her labor of childbirth. Adam was to suffer pain and sorrow in his labor with the ground. Woman was to labor bringing into the world the future generations and raising them. Man was to labor providing those future generations with their most basic need, which is food. Exactly. Adam, and of course all future men, would encounter trials and difficulties in in his toil and his sweat, working the ground in order to get a harvest. And in doing this, in working the ground, he would be reminded of how his disobedience had affected the creation, you know, the earth itself, nature. Man was condemned here by God to live in a cursed world, a world of corruption and decay and imperfection. The Hebrew of verse 17 literally reads this, Cursed be the ground because of you. 
The earth was cursed. Why? Because of Adam's sin. Now, again, as in the case with the animals who likewise suffer because of Adam's sin, someone here might wonder why the earth would have to suffer a curse when it was Adam who sinned, not the earth. The earth can't sin. Adam sinned, so why should the earth suffer? Well, we have to realize, first of all, that Adam and the earth are interrelated. Adam was taken from the dust of the earth, wasn't he? Back in Genesis 2-7, that's God took the dust of the earth and formed Adam. God had also made the earth specifically for Adam. However, God could not, he could not now allow an imperfect Adam to continue to live in a perfect world because imperfection is not compatible with perfection. Do you get it? How do you think it would have gone, you know, if imperfect Adam lived on a perfect world? It wouldn't have worked out. Pretty soon, imperfect Adam would have corrupted perfect earth. But they're not compatible. So God, along with Adam being cursed, God had to curse the earth as part of the judgment on Adam. So Adam then was condemned to struggle against nature for his own survival. He would suffer sorrow in meeting his very most basic need, which is food. And again, the word here for sorrow in the Hebrew is the same word that was used to speak of the woman's sorrow in childbirth. It's the word itzaban, which means, you know, pain, trouble, sorrow. Before the fall, Adam's labor, you know, when he was to keep the ground and, you know, do a little gardening, that work was not stressful or a strain. He didn't, he didn't even have such words as cursed or sorrow or thorns, thistles, sweat, sin, death. Such words as those weren't even in his vocabulary before he sinned. The earth itself, remember, had, had produced every herb-bearing seed and had yielded um, trees with fruits yielding seed. Back in Genesis 1.29, the earth just brought forth these things for Adam. Back before the fall, nature was completely under control and man had dominion over it. However, after the fall, nature would no longer be under control. It would produce thorns and thistles and weeds and diseases and all kinds of other problems for man, as we well know, and woman. Nature would no longer naturally and orderly and regularly produce plenty of food for people to eat. So man would have to toil, he would have to sweat, and he would often have to shed many tears in order just to meet his most basic need, that of food. Furthermore, as man worked and tilled the soil, he would forever be reminded of the fact that one day he would die and his body would return to the dust from which it came. You know, as he's working the dust, he would constantly be reminded that one day he would return to that dust. It says, For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. So the curse here, remember the curse goes from 14 through 19. The curse ends in verse 19 by mentioning the ultimate wages of sin. What is the ultimate wages of sin? Death. Death is the greatest enemy of man. It's the most dreaded and yet is the most inevitable aspect of existence. As much as men might try to cover over it, by placing flowers on a coffin and flowers all around a coffin, and as much as they might try to hide some of the hideousness of death by dressing up corpses and by embalming the dead, death still remains death. It is the king of all terrors, and it's the final sorrow this side of eternity. But... Praise the Lord. God did not present Adam and Eve with this bad news, remember, before he had given them 
the good news back there in Genesis 15, which we'll look at in our next lesson. So for the Christian, death is not the final victory, is it? He's taken the sting from death and the victory from the grave or the other way around, whichever way it is. Let's look. Well, we've already read 17 to 18. Now, the curse on nature overlaps the curse with man. So I'm not going to read those verses again, but I want to talk now about the curse on nature. Adam's sin brought into motion the law of disobedience, the law of disorder, the law of imbalance, all of which result in corruption. And science has come to call this law, let's see who knows, what is the name of this law where everything is decaying and decomposing and going downhill? Yes, yes, the second law of thermodynamics. Science knows that this is, this is the law, it's universal and it's known to exist, that everything is in a state of decay and corruption. Everything is going downhill. This includes such processes as aging and deterioration, disorder, decay, entropy, corruption, imbalance, and eventually returning to the dust. This foundational and universally accepted law, it's a scientific law, is perhaps the single greatest factor against the theory of evolution. It's very difficult for evolutionists to explain this law. When they say everything is getting better and better, and this law says, no, it's totally the opposite. Everything is decaying and running down. So that's the single greatest factor against evolutionism. And we did talk about this when we did our study on evolutionism versus creationism. Well, in Romans 8, if you want to flip over real quickly, I'm almost through. Romans 8, verses 19 to 22, we learn more about the consequences of Adam's sin upon nature. Paul described for us here in this passage, Romans 8, 19 to 22, he described all creation as living and waiting in earnest expectation for the day when the sons of God will be glorified. When will that be? When the Lord returns. Now the words in Greek, earnest expectation, let's see there in... um, Verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. There, those words, earnest expectation, literally mean this, to watch with the neck outstretched and the head erect. Here's what's, this is what nature is doing. Looking like that, waiting for the coming of the Lord's return. This is persistent, you know, we should take a a lesson from nature. This is persistent expectation that doesn't give up, but continues to keep looking for the hope of its redemption and for renovation. Even though because of the sin of the first Adam, all creation is now subject to corruption and to vanity, as it says in verse 20 20 there, means all creation is subject to um, futility and to frustration. Yet, the creation knows that ultimately it will be delivered from this curse of corruption, just as the sons of God, the sons of man, those uh, who are truly saved, will also be delivered from it. And the deliverance, as I said, will occur at the time of the second coming of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. When he is stabbed, when he comes at the end of the tribulation, you know, he, he comes before the tribulation for those who are his own, and we are raptured and go with him, you know, to be with him in heaven. After the seven years of tribulation, he returns all the way, comes back to earth, and establishes his millennial kingdom, his 1,000-year kingdom here on earth. When he establishes that kingdom, much of the curse that we've been reading about in Genesis 3, 14 to 19, will be reversed in what he himself called the regeneration. Christ called it the regeneration. That's when a lion will be able, a lamb will be able to lie down with a lion, etc. A lot of the curse will be reversed. 
Um, but then in the eternal state, after the thousand-year kingdom and this present earth is destroyed by fire and God creates a new heaven and a new earth, creation will experience complete and perfect re- renovation or regeneration. And it will you know, be in a state as it was before the fall. When God placed the curse on man and his entire environment, he had, I mean, not only was he giving this for punitive reasons, because he is a holy and a just God, but it was, he knew that it was also going to force man to realize the seriousness of his sin. And it also would force man to recognize his helplessness in being able to save either himself or his world from eventual destruction and death. And God also wanted man to understand how wicked are the works of Satan. And all these things would have been realized as, Adam, as God was giving Adam and Eve these judgments man would have realized how wicked and horrible Satan is. He, he would have seen that the devil's promises are a lot of uh, uh, nothing but lies, deceitful lies, and even worse, subtle, cunning half-truths. And half-truths can be more poisonous than lies. So man did indeed have his eyes open to a lot of things, as Satan had said. But it surely was not for the betterment of his condition, was it? Not by any means at all.